guys and girls, and welcome to Popper's Cage, episode 19. I'm Dime Collector. I'm going to be your host today, and we have a very special guest. You know him from websites like Pure MTGO and more recently MTGO Academy, and I'm very happy to introduce Justin. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's great. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So before we get started with today's topic, why don't you just take some time out and introduce yourself, let people know how you got started with Magic and what you've been doing lately. All right. Uh, well, we can go way back because I started, I guess, around Tempest. Um, and I used to be a big paper player, but I kind of suffered from that same thing that a lot of people do where most of my friends didn't play and there weren't a lot of people I knew locally who played. So I really stopped playing for a long time until about Ravnica. And that's when I had a friend introduce me to Magic Online, which was like the coolest thing ever because now all of a sudden I could play games whenever um, you know, you could, everyone knows this, you can find drafts, you can find casual, whatever your, your stitch is, you can find it. Um, so that was a real turn, turning point for me. I started writing with Pure around, I guess it was 2010. So it was like two years ago. Um, and I just basically, I have this thing against standard. I really don't like standards. So my article series was called Anything But Standard. And I did. I talked about um, tribal. I talked about prismatic. You know, whatever came to my mind is what I talked about. So I I played a lot online and then I kind of reached another situation. A lot of players find themselves in where I kind of hit some financial troubles, didn't have a job out of college and bills were piling up. So I had to sell off my entire collection to kind of pay for bills and take a break for a while. Uh, When I came back about a year or so later, I kind of ended up playing Pauper by just budgetary reasons. And so I've been playing Pauper since. um, And I I started my series up again on Pure and and wrote there for a while, uh, specifically looking at Pauper and the metagame. And I look at casual, I look at competitive, just anything Pauper. Um, And I did that for a while until I ran into some technical issues. So my series there had to stop because for whatever reason, uh, they couldn't get the site to work with my account. So um, that landed me on MTGO Academy, where you find me nowadays. Uh, the guys there were nice enough to to give me a shot and allow me to to move my series over there. So that was uh, that was pretty awesome, I think. Yeah, it's really cool that we're writing for the same site now because I feel like it was only a matter of time before we started to collaborate at least in some capacity. So now we have all of our information kind of consolidated on this website, which I think is really cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and we're finally starting to get to that point where we don't kind of overlap topics. So it's going to give people a lot of great opportunities to to get a lot of you know popper information from MTGO Academy. Yeah, definitely. And I think you're doing uh, just a fantastic job. You're contributing uh, so much to the popper format and it really shows with the the level of detail and the the actual amount of information that you put into each of your articles so why don't we just go ahead and move into our main topic here which is going to be going rogue and playing rogue decks in the popper format we'll talk about what does that even mean what is a rogue deck why is it good sometimes to play rogue strategies and just our overall thoughts and opinions on certain strategies that some people might not be very aware of. So the first thing we'll just jump into here is what is a rogue deck? And I consider a rogue deck to be an unorthodox strategy or a strategy or type of deck that is not really popular 
in the format in the metagame. So it's something that sometimes can be a homebrew, which is essentially a deck that a player makes him or herself on his own with their collection of cards, as opposed to a net deck, which is something that you can get online. You look at previous events and just sort of copy-paste whatever list catches your eye. This is something that requires a little more innovation, a little more ingenuity, and it's essentially something that's a bit off of the radar. So uh, for you, what, what constitutes a rogue deck and what really fits the criteria? Well, if we if we start at the concept of homebrew you mentioned there, um, I always kind of consider it like like tiers. You basically, you consider a homebrew deck, and like you said, that's something someone just throws together. They're probably playing cards that you don't see in most of the popular decks, and they bring to any kind of tournament. And then that can eventually turn into a rogue where, you know, someone sees it and says, hey, you know, this mechanic from that deck is really cool, or maybe the whole deck is really cool. And then I can see that, you know, going from Rogue up to an actual, you know, top-tier deck. You know, like I said, working up those tiers there because other players see it and go, hey, that's really great, that's really strong against what people are playing currently. And so, you know, I think it's a great progression that we we can see there. As far as Rogues, the way I always like to to kind of talk about it is um, it's something that's that's, like you said, unpopular, it's not really the the in thing to do, but it's still successful. You know, we we get the the daily events, and they they recently changed how many of those that they've let us see the results of. Um, but those have really been kind of the shiphead for people seeing decks and copying them, and and less creation is is what the argument was for that. You know, when it comes to rogues, it was things that people brought in to combat these top tier decks it's things people made themselves you know outside of the box strategies to try and take down these usual top tier decks um they're usually considered to be kind of inferior to those top decks um or bad in some cases i've seen you know grinding players talk down about things like burn and that is a deck that has managed to show up 4 and 0 in several events and it's not so much i think that it's a bad deck it's just the fact that, you know, it's it's not a top tier. Sure, it doesn't win all the time, but none of these decks win all the time. If you had a deck that won all the time, you know, what's the point of the game in general? So um, let's go ahead and move ahead and talk about why rogue decks are important. And we've sort of touched on it a little bit, but I wanted to add a, a few key points here. And I think one of the big ones is the... I guess you could call it the unpredictability of a rogue strategy. Some of these uh, top tier decks, as you said, you know, we tend to see them often. So we get a good feel for how our matchups will be against them. We can anticipate what kind of cards we're going to come up against. And we have an idea of how we want to sideboard in those matchups. But when you go up against a rogue deck, maybe you've never seen it before. Maybe you've only played against it one or two times. You're not going to have as sound a fundamental strategy on how to beat them. And there's going to be more cards that pop up that you're unable to anticipate. So it's going to make your play a little bit more clouded, your your judgment more clouded. And it gives that rogue player a bit of a tactical edge. Because if you are playing, let's say, a mono blue Delver, they're probably, if if they've done uh, you know adequate preparation, they're probably going to be ready for you with their rogue strategy. I was just going to say that it's it's definitely one of those things, you know, especially Delver and is it posts in these top decks, people talk them to death. So if you're spending just any energy reading articles or paying attention to videos and stuff like that, there's plenty of content there talking those to death. So it's it is pretty easy, like you said, to to kind of figure out how to combat those. Right. So when you're coming into an event or even just the tournament practice room with something unexpected, 
you can have a slight tactical edge there. So some of the other um, advantages of playing a rogue strategy is that it kind of opens you up to being more of an explorer and more of an innovator in your thought process. It lets you explore alternate possibilities some more unorthodox card choices, and that just helps you overall become a better, not necessarily a better player, but definitely a better deck builder and tuner, and it allows you to look at new cards, cards coming in from new sets, with a more open state of mind, I suppose. You're able to see more interactions and more possibilities than someone who's just purely going to net deck and kind of cut themselves off from really trying to brew and push the format in new directions. Yeah, you know, I I might even actually make the argument that it does make you a better player. Because one of the things I'm always trying to convey to people is that the best way to understand how to combat a deck in any format is, you know, maybe play that deck yourself. So by playing a, a certain kind of deck, if you're playing a rogue strategy, it's kind of giving you a look at how to combat that deck at a different angle. You know, say you're playing Delver, all of a sudden you can see, hey, maybe this random card choice I, I used for my rogue deck is actually really good for this Delver match. And now I can, you know, switch that into, you know, any other already established deck type. So I think it, it does give you a lot of advantages to, to really learn kind of the interactions of the cards and what pieces are important for different matchups and interactions. That's a really good point. And so I think there there are quite a few advantages to going rogue when you can, but I just want to remind people to always, when choosing a deck or playing a deck, always try and play to your own strengths as a player. So just because something is rogue doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the deck for you to play. If you are really good at playing something like an aggro control tempo based deck, then there's really nothing wrong with playing mono blue Delver as opposed to some rogue strategy that maybe doesn't cater to your own uh, play style. So always make sure that if you do go rogue, play a deck that really suits you as a player. That's at least from my experience, uh, something that I've learned over the brief amount of time that I have been playing Popper. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would I would also add, like, uh, if you consider... There was a, a red and black version of Tortured Reanimator that came out for a while, um, and that was a deck that showed up a lot in daily events. But if you were paying attention, that was being run by one to two players. It was always the same two people who were successful with it. So, you know, it, again, when you're talking about you know, picking up a rogue deck, don't pick it up just because you think it looks cool because maybe you want to sit down with that deck and play it through because that deck was very hard to run. I never ran it with any success and I tried it on many attempts. Um, so even if it's not your play style, I mean, that's definitely a consideration. But another consideration is that it may be a lot harder than it looks. You could take a deck and say, oh, this is a great rogue. But when you try it out, you may not understand the interactions or it may be tougher to play than you expect to. Great. So since we've talked about what are the advantages of going rogue? Why don't we just get into some specifics, talk about a few decks in particular, what we like about them, kind of how they operate. And we can go ahead and start with you since you tend to focus a little bit in a lot of your articles on certain rogue strategies that are popping up. Um, If you'd like, why don't you go ahead and talk about a couple decks that you've had your eye on or you want to bring more attention to? All right. I guess we can start with uh, what I call teachings control. 
And this is usually a uh, blue-black control deck. Now, there are kind of generic blue-black control decks out there, but the one that I really specify as teachings control is usually running like a full set of mystical teachings, and that really is kind of the backbone of the deck. It's something that has been kind of dormant for a while now. This was really popular. It picked up steam, I guess, back in August, um, where it was showing up every week with, you know, 14 to 17 players were ending up within the money at the end of an event, and they were running some version of teachings. Uh, and this is, you know, I homebrew this a lot. I run a lot of it um, in, like, the tournament practice room because I personally don't have time for daily events. Uh, but it's something that's, you know, near and dear to my heart because I am a, a control player, and I love when it comes to blue and black. That's that's my colors. But uh, it really works well because Mystical Teachings gives you such an incredible toolbox. It's, you know, a an instant speed spell that allows you to search your deck for an instant and put it in your hand. And more importantly, it's got that flashback ability. So when you're running a full set of Mystical Teachings in your deck, that works out to be eight tutors. And, you know, you can't argue with that. So what it allows you to do is run this entire toolbox of instants, including counter spells, card draw, creature control, whatever you need can come out of Mystical Teachings. It, it really works great because it runs a small creature base. Usually it'll run, like... Uh, Chittering Rats and Ravenous Rats to, to kind of keep your hand down. But it, that's about it for discard most of the time. Um, it will run things like Muldrifter to kind of accelerate. There isn't a lot of mana acceleration to it, which can slow it down, because when you get to that point that you're flashing back Mystical Teachings, all of a sudden you're looking at six, and that's that's a little hefty at times. Um, but it, it did get really popular at a point when aggro-based decks were really coming about. Um, Stompy was something that had really started creeping up there, and, you know, this is a great option for it because you get Doomblades, you get Edicts. And one of my favorite cards that doesn't actually see a lot of plays is Agony Warp. Uh, that's actually become a little more popular now. We have Demir Post as a real thing. Uh, like I said, UB Control comes up every once in a while. And Agony Warp, I think, is a great option because it allows you to, to shut down two creatures most of the time. Um, and it's one of those cards that hadn't seen a lot of play because it forces you into blue and black. So, I mean, you get a lot of disruption there, but it, it has a lot of great answers versus the big decks. If you consider the top-tier decks out there, you know, things like Delver and Storm, it gets a lot of great answers. Because you're running black, you get things like Echoing Decay and Nausea, and that, of course, helps you out with the vast array of Goblin Tokens. Um, the Nausea, as well, can help you. You know, Hexproof is a thing that's coming out now. You get options for hand control, because you're running black, you can then go into Duress off the sideboard. Any kind of counter control is main deck, they usually run a copy of the Bochuka Bog, and that card I think is one of the the most underestimated things in Popper as well, because that really shuts down a lot of stuff off of um, blue control, where they're using accumulated knowledge. It can shut down the flashback abilities on many post strategies, you know, deep analysis, other mystical teachings. So I think the deck, you know, gives you it, it's a typical control deck. It's very heavy control, but it does have a decent creature base to be able to get the damage through and not take you into a, a late late game strategy. So I think it's one of those decks that doesn't get a lot of love. I'm not really sure why it went dormant for so long. I guess maybe kind of a, a creeping up in Delver plays. Um, that matchup is not fantastic because of the fact that it, it works such a, a nice balance between creatures and control in Delver. Um, so I don't know why that one's kind of died out, but that's one of my personal favorites. I even run um, a version of the deck that runs Innocent Bloods and the Edicts to shut down Hexproof really heavy. You know, I've seen them run with a splash of green for uh, Sprout Swarm. I saw back when we had Thursday Night Magic, there was actually a five-color teachings deck that managed to show up, which I thought was the coolest thing ever, but I never saw anyone else attempt it, so... 
you know, there's just a lot of options for teachings, and I think it, it provides you such a great strategy because you do have that toolbox available to you. I'm curious, what are the win conditions in, in your teachings decks that you're referring to? Um, well, my personal one, like I said, is is actually the one that, that splashes Sprout Swarm. So my only creatures in my homebrew version is four Muldrifters and then a copy of Sprout Swarm, um, which is uh, both frustrating for opponents and funny for me. Um, but when you look at the more classical versions, the rogue decks that actually show up in daily events they usually run muldrifter they run uh chittering rats and ravenous rats and these are kind of you know it's a small creature base but the idea is that you want to keep your opponent's tempo in control keep the board in control now you usually run in a full set of agony warps so you can easily take down creatures there um you can use the minus three minus zero ability to kind of control combat and make blocking a little bit more favorable um, so you really want to look to, to hold down your opponent's creature base through discard, or I'm sorry, um, targeted kill and counter control. So you keep that creature base of your opponents really locked down, and then you can eventually kind of swing through there. Like it's it's definitely a late game strategy. You're not going to win really fast with that. If you're looking for a fast deck, this is not it. Um, but if you're a, a control player who likes to to really be significant control then I think this is a great option. Um, the fact that teachings gives you, like I said, such a toolbox, I, I love it. I love the fact that, you know, if you get to that mid to late game part where you've got a whole pile of mana sitting on the table available to you, you can, in response to a spell, pay four for a teachings and then get a negate or a counter spell. So, you know, it feels like an efficient use of your mana. It feels like you're not wasting plays. It feels like you're actually using all of the land available to you at all times. So did you want to move on to a second deck or we can kind of switch off and I can talk about one at this point? It's it's really up to you. Yeah, why don't you go ahead? All right. So the deck I want to talk about in terms of rogue strategies, it's kind of a cop out because this is a deck that I've done some developing myself with. And I'm really just kind of plugging it because I want to see more people mess around with it. I want to see it get more play. It has place in at least a daily event or two. And I played it in a daily event as well. And this is a deck I call Golgari Monsters. And essentially, it's a green-black creature-based beatdown strategy. It's a little bit more mid-range, I think, than dedicated aggro. And the concept is that you want to be playing a turn one mana accelerator, so some sort of elf. This deck plays Llanowar Elves, Elves of Deep Shadow, which is an elf that produces black and deals you one damage whenever it does that, and also plays a couple copies of Finehorn Elves, which is functionally the same thing as Llanowar Elves. And then what it does is it ramps on turns two and three into some more resilient or, I guess, harder to deal with creature threats, like Blastoderm is is a big one. It's probably the best creature in this deck, a 5-5 Shroud for four, and it has the, I believe it's vanishing i don't remember if this one's vanishing or fading uh i think it's fading yeah this one has fading and so it really only stays in play to attack for about three turns and then you're gonna lose it but it's just such a big creature that comes down early it it causes quite a few problems for the opponent and the shroud is is really huge there and it also plays a creature called Jalrel Centaur, which is a uh, three-drop, two-two shroud with flanking, and so whenever it's blocked, the blocking creature gets minus one, minus one until end of turn. So it's a two-two that can attack into three toughness guys, and again, is very hard to deal with because of shroud. And then, so this deck is essentially a very creature-based, plays about 28 creatures, and then is splashing black for some removal, some sideboard options. So this deck also is playing Echoing Decay as a way to, 
you know, hit Empty the Warren's tokens to hit multiple creatures like Squadron Hawk. And then it's also running Doom Blades in order to hit some of the bigger or harder to deal with creatures. And so this is a deck that I've talked about a couple times on MTGO Academy, both episodes 9 and 10 of my article series there. So it's a strategy I'd love to see more in the metagame and probably will return to. Yeah, now I, I saw this, uh, the articles you wrote on this. Were you running leeches? I can't remember. Yeah, that's another, uh, big part of this deck that I forgot to mention is putrid leech. And it's one of the things that drew me to playing green black. Uh, Alex Ullman from Star City Games, he's mentioned a couple times that he's been trying to make putrid leech work in popper. So I decided to give it a spin myself. And so between the putrid leeches and the elves of deep shadow, this is a deck that tends to be very liberal with its life total. So, you know, the putrid leech, you have to pay two life to give it plus two, plus two until end of turn. But that is a really big deal actually, because he can usually just attack into whatever they have and they're not going to want to block. And that's, that's a really good benefit of this deck. And in a pinch, you can even trade him for some of the affinity creatures. But overall, I've been really liking that card. The green black cost is a little tricky at times, but um, he's a perfectly fine turn two play as opposed to, you know, ramping into like a three drop or something. So um, do you have another deck that you'd like to talk about here? Well, yeah, I would love to uh, kind of talk about a, a concept more than a deck with uh, what I like to call Junk Post. Yeah, that sounds good. All right. Uh, and I'll try and be as, as brief about this as possible, because if you start getting me talking about 8 Post and Pauper, I can go on forever. Um, but when I was writing it pure, I had put together this article that I had titled Junk Post, and I've kind of used the term ever since. And I've gotten a little bit of gruff for it because I know that junk is actually kind of a specific deck type in, to most people. Um, so, yeah, I have gotten a little bit of gruff for using it. But what I've basically used it for is describing this whole different array of eight post decks that we have. Now, when you look at competitive popper, you are more than familiar with Is It Post. Um, this is a blue-red version of the eight post decks that use Cloud Post to generate a lot of mana, in addition to Glimmer Post to gain a lot of life. And we've recently seen a lot of Demir Post, which is the blue and black version. Now, when I say Junk Post, what I've used this as kind of a catch-all for all of the different varieties of eight post decks that we've seen. I even did a small series uh, on YouTube where I've talked about kind of what's been missing. If you consider eight posts, you know, we've seen monocolored eight post decks and we've seen basically guild eight post decks. In monocolor, we saw a lot of green posts and that was something that was popular a long time ago, relatively. Um, it's still something that shows up time to time. And that had actually kind of a surprisingly small creature base using things like Orok Herds and Olamog's Crusher as your win conditions. And it just ramped very well. It used Reap and Sow to really get into your mana, the Acid Moss ex exploration map, stuff like that, to really ramp up into the mana and be able to cast things like Orox Herd. And Orox Herd is a creature that, you know, not only does it get bigger and trample, but it allows you to fetch other ones. So it basically creates card advantage in a deck that doesn't play any kind of card advantage color. And so you had that one. 
Um, we had a short period of time where there was a popular white version of 8 Post, and this was the Rebel version. Um, and that used a whole bunch of the Rebels from Mercadian Masks that had the ability to search for other Rebels. And so you would be able to use all of this extra mana generated off of Cloud Post, and you would use the Rebels, and you could ramp into a just pile of Rebels. And none of them were impressive. They didn't really do anything in most cases other than fetch other Rebels. Um, but, you know, that worked out really well. Uh, we saw a mono-red version, and this one was based a significant amount on not only land destruction from main deck Earthrifts, um, but it also brought in things like Molten Rain, Stone Rain, and then it ran those alongside the finisher that we know from Is It Post in a full set of, you know, Caravex Torch, and it ran Rolling Thunder. So it didn't necessarily have to do all of this damage at once to an opponent off that one draw. If you consider Is It Post, what it really looks to do is get to that mid to late game in most cases, where it has built up enough of a mana base that it can just knock you on the head with a Rolling Thunder to the face for 20 if they need to. Um, and the mono-red version could get away with casting smaller ones and using Rolling Thunder for other means like creature control um, and get around that. What I, I talk about all the time when I talk about Junk Post is we see variations show up all the time of just 8 Post. I've seen blue and white versions show up. I personally put together a a Simic version that showed up for one daily event, which was awesome, and props to the guy who ran it. And then we've seen Simic Post actually become a real thing now with a new version that runs Fissure Storm. So you can start out with these Junk Post ideas and all of these variations and rogue versions of 8 Post, and they can branch into being successful. You know, this is what I was talking about kind of at the beginning here, where you can go from that, that homebrew step to rogue to something more substantial, and that happened with Simic Post. Another popular example like that is Blue Post. We've seen a lot of Blue Post show up recently with people like New Plan. Um, I think you and I both talked about it in, in articles. Um, and it, it basically runs a mono blue control version. You know, I think Junk Post is a great thing. Post is something that is so unexplored. Um, and then, you know, I talked about that series I was working on. And there will be a big article at some point. I don't know if they're going to have me break it up. But it will be talking about all of the different versions of mono colored Post. And I even broke down, you know, things. I made an artifact post deck that was colorless. Um, I put together a black post deck. And I've been building post decks for the different variations, the guilds that haven't been represented. You know, we've seen Demir, we saw Is It, we saw Simic. But odd versions like, you know, Grull Post and um, Azorus Post and stuff like that. So, you know, I think there's a lot of great rogue strategies that can come out of this concept of 8 Post or Junk Post, as I like to call it. Um, and, you know, it, it's one of the great things about rogue is because it opens up so much possibilities to you. It gives you so much room for creativity. What do you think about just taking like a five minute break from here and kind of regrouping and then we can finish off the rest of the episode? OK, that works for me. talking about rogue decks in popper so now what we're going to do is we're going to look at a deck that has been showing up very recently in the daily events and it's been rogue pretty much for its entire existence i'm not sure if it will be able to cross over to being more of an established top tier deck but it's something i like to see in the metagame and i think it can be explored with as 
I think is displayed in this deck list that we're going to look at here. And that's the Elves deck. And the Elves deck is a tribal, typically green-based deck, obviously, that's going to be playing cheap Elves and using the synergies that they have together. More often than not, it's going to either generate a ton of mana, create a ton of guys, or with the versions that play the card Distant Melody, which is a blue sorcery, it's going to be drawing a ton of cards. Now, the version we're going to look at today is a newer version as far as I know. It's a slightly different because it's staying mono green and it's playing a very low land count, but substituting that or supplementing that with those cheap mana producing elves and with the card land grant, which allows you to search up a, uh, a forest for free, essentially, if you don't have any lands in your hand. So it's kind of an interesting approach that allows this deck to be very spell dense play a ton of spells, which I think is one of the things that this deck wants to do. Now, I, I guess I'll make a sort of uh, contrast between the earlier versions. They would typically play more lands than this, which uh, plays 12 lands. And of course, this deck list will be available in the show notes, so you can go ahead and click on that. And these older versions would splash blue and sometimes even red for more wind conditions. The blue would be splashed for Distant Melody, and they would use... Things like Sylvan Ranger to tutor up islands, and they would use Birchlore Rangers, which has an activated ability of tapping two untapped elves to add mana of any color. And that's something that definitely synergizes well with Nettle Sentinel, because you can tap the Nettle Sentinel for the Birchlore Rangers ability and then cast a, a green elf, and then you untap the Nettle Sentinel with its triggered ability, and then you can tap those two new, uh, you can tap the Nettle Sentinel and the new elf to add more mana, and you can kind of rinse, wash, and repeat. And then, of course, there's the Timber Watch elf, which makes a creature get plus X plus X until end of turn for the number of elves you have in control. So those are, those are just some of the basic tenets of those old elf strategies. Now, looking at this new deck here, it's a 4-0 list by Dana B7, who I'm not familiar with that name, but but maybe we'll be seeing more of this player in the future. It's running only 12 forests and then running a lot of these elf staples. But I think the notable things here is that it has some alternate card choices. For the win condition has this card Kavu Primark, which is from Future Sight. It's a 3-3 for three colorless and green. Has the Convoke ability, so it reduces the casting cost by one for each creature you tap while playing the spell. And then it has a kicker cost of four colorless. So you can, the alternate cost for this would be essentially seven colorless in green. And if you pay the kicker cost, you get to add four plus one plus one counters on this creature. So it's uh, a seven seven that you can cast if you use the kicker. And the other card that this deck is playing is called Mut or Multani's Acolyte. I'm not really sure how to pronounce these some of these, but... Sounds about right. Yeah, it's a, it's a two one for green green. And it draws a card when it comes into play. But it does have have a downside it has an echo cost that means your next upkeep you're going to have to pay its casting cost once again if you want it to remain on the battlefield everything else is fairly common in these elf decks but it also is playing something that i think a lot of these elf decks should consider should seriously consider which is the spider silk armor and that gives the toughness of all your creatures it adds plus oh plus one and gives them reach so that is really good in a deck where almost all of your creatures are one toughness and you can get destroyed by things like electricery 
one-toughness hosing cards could really blow you out with certain draws with this kind of deck. I consider this to be more of a combo deck, but it, it does have that alternate beatdown strategy it can go on. It's not very resilient as an aggro deck because a lot of these early creatures are just 1-1s. And it's a deck I've faced a few times, but I've never actually sleeved up myself. I think this is a strategy that's really interesting, um, and I'd like to see more of it, but I do think there are some weaknesses, including the fact that these creatures are just dorks. They're really small, and they're very, very vulnerable to mass removal. And I think that could be one of the downsides of playing a deck like this, and I'm not sure which version is more robust will prove to be better. I think the Distant Melody can be a huge benefit, just being able to draw upwards of five cards or more off of one card. And sometimes you can get really silly and just draw your entire deck once you've kind of comboed off here. So those are kind of my initial thoughts on these Elves decks. What do you think about the strategy in particular? Have you had any personal experience you know, playing against it or playing it? And you know, how do you feel about them? Well, my only playing experience is uh, you will see it pop up in the casual room every once in a while. I think your your ideal version is somewhere in between these two. I, I have to agree with you. I really like Distant Melody. I like the ability to draw just a disgusting number of cards. Um, and when you know, you're know you creating all these mana creatures, it gives you so many opportunities to draw a, a large number of cards and replay them. I, I also agree with you on the, the fact that Spider Silk Armor is an amazing card for this deck. You know, you talked about Electricery and all those things. Those will be game over against this deck if you do not have Spider Silk Armor out. <laughs> that card is, you know, it's it's fantastic, actually, in this deck. And it never would have occurred to me until I saw this list. And I, you know, it, it seems silly to say, but, you know, it really works well. You think that three cost is a little bit clunky at first, but when you're running all these mana elves, you can get that out easily on turn two. Um, that's not a big deal at all. You know, and that's going to give you all kinds of options to get around those electricries. Uh, you know, mass kill is, is an actual concept that most decks take into account just because of the fact that people run Storm, and Storm is one of the top tier decks. So having mass kill in some form, you know, it's pauper, so it's not very good, but it's still there. And Spider Silk Armor, you get a couple of those on the field, you'll be able to even get around Echoing Decay and stuff like that. I think another really great thing that people might not understand about this, you know, the Primarch, like you said, that, again, another really cool integration to this deck. It's a 7-7 seven, seven for 8, essentially. You can Convoke, so it's it's cheaper. But still, that, that doesn't seem great off the top. Um, one of the things I think people might overlook about this is on that Timberwatch Elf, which really, I think, is the biggest threat in this deck. You know, the Primarch is clearly the heavy lifter, but behind the scenes, that Timberwatch Elf is going to be able to pump it up because it's uh, giving target creature plus X plus X and not target Elf. And I think that's actually a big thing that people might overlook. Um, another thing, I, one of the, the classic lists they used to run as well was the uh, Elvish Branchbender, and that was the one that turned a forest into a, a large tree folk based on how many elves you had. Uh, and I think that was kind of, I guess, the replacement maybe for the Primarch in this version of the deck. Um, I also really like the Wellwishers. You know, you can get a, you talk about disgusting amount of card draw off of the uh, Distant Melody, but the Wellwisher can give you a, a stupid amount of life too. Yeah, that is one I definitely overlooked, and one of the good things about this deck is that there are these creatures that are kind of must-kill threats, and they're not 
threats in the traditional sense that they're just going to attack you and, and cause you a lot of harm, but they're threats in the sense that they're going to really swing the game in the elf player's favor. And those well-wishers, yeah. especially in multiples, get really disgusting if you can't kill them. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's almost like, you know, you said it, it's kind of like a combo deck, and it's like the combo pieces. And most combo decks, you know, you have your combo pieces, and then the rest of your deck is built around basically protecting them, whether it's with control or giving them shroud or of some s- sort. And what this deck kind of does to get around having to include that kind of thing is just have so many threats that you really have to be careful with what you decide to kill. Yeah, and one thing about that Timberwatch Elf you're talking about is it's almost uh, it's a very similar effect I, I feel to the the Goblin Sledder and Mog Raider kind of things in Goblins is in the sense that that one creature that you're unable to block can just become the biggest thing on the board and can really just deliver the death blow. Yeah, it gives you a lot of options for um, kind of protecting creatures as well, I guess, to, to get them out of lightning bolt range. I was looking at this list, and you, you sent me the link, and I was a little surprised not to see the, the Priests of uh, Titania. I think it is the one that taps for green for each elf. Oh, yeah, the two-drop that can add, ramp you incredibly fast. Yeah, I was I was a little surprised not to see that in the deck. That's usually a card that you just figure being a staple of any elf deck. Yeah, and it seems like... Here, it's being replaced with that Acolyte to kind of cycle through more cards. So I'm, I'm really not sure because these decks do have so many accelerators. Figuring out how many to play and which ones to play seems a little problematic. So maybe even this player is not sure if, if the Priest is needed or not. Yeah, they're, you know, like Pokemon, you just want to have all of them. <laughs> this deck is already playing 12 lands only, so... Yeah, but you know what's really cool is the land grant, and that's, again, something that I, I may not have considered right off the bat, but you only need one forest. As soon as you get that one forest, you can start dropping all those one-mana dorks, and that's that's awesome. That's all you need. You don't need to keep a hand, you know, based on how many land it has. You just get yourself a land grant, and you've got the one forest you need. Yeah, You know, you think about kind of magic in its general form, and we've, in every format, had this balance between elves and goblins down to the special set they released. And goblins has always been kind of a thing in Pauper. It's nice to see elves kind of balancing that out for a change. That's true. And one of the, I guess, less fortunate things about both these decks is they haven't really received a huge update lately in terms of, you know, really relevant goblin or elf. I, this list is playing Copperhorn Scout, which is probably the most recent card. And that, yeah. that can be pretty broken as well when you are able to attack with your whole team and then untap the guys, especially the Timberwatch Elf once again, the Wellwisher, you can reuse yeah, it. Yeah, Wellwisher. <laughs> <laughs> or you can just make a ton of mana post-combat and, and fill up the board once again. Oh yeah, there's nothing like swigging through for, you know, 10 to 15 and then untapping everything and drawing a whole bunch of cards or playing a whole bunch more creatures, you know. It can, it can get really gross. Yeah, I, I've got a feeling I'm going to be playing elves pretty soon just to explore it it's one of the decks i haven't played which i really have no reason (laughs) to have not played this yet so i don't know if i'm going to run this exact list i'll kind of tinker around with variations that have shown up and see what i like the most but yeah and i just saw this 41 creatures (laughs) yep 41 yes indeed that is absurd i've never seen i don't think i've ever seen a deck in popper with nearly that many Cool. Well, that's pretty much all I have to say about this strategy. Did you want to just throw in anything else? Uh, with the elves? No, I think uh, I think the elves are pretty well covered. Uh, 
like I said, I think he's he's hit it from all angles. This has brought in a lot of choices that I really wouldn't have expected. All right. Well, from here, I'm definitely cool with just opening up the floor. If you wanted to talk about any other decks in particular or you want to talk about uh, rogue strategies in general. If you still look at the daily event numbers that we are given, you can still get a decent amount of data out of that. And I kind of just wanted to talk real quick about the rogues and the creativity that we are seeing. So if you consider, and I I wrote this really long article on Pure that um, I want to recommend people to check out, and it was kind of an introduction to competitive pauper. Now, some of the numbers are not current um, anymore, but it's still a great place to, to get a lot of general ideas. And what I talked about is how there are kind of three major tiers and about nine decks that you're almost guaranteed to see in every event. Um, these include things like Stompy, Delver Blue, Post in, you know, either Is It or Demir form, and Storm in its various versions, Mono Black Control, Affinity. These were kind of the big ones, in, in fact. And so these top decks you will see week to week, but we're actually getting a surprising amount of rogue decks that show up week to week as well. Despite whatever creativity loss there might be by these numbers being kind of segmented and and hidden away from us, we're still getting a large number of rogues. You know, each week, if you look at it, only about three-fourths of the metagame is made up of the quote-unquote top-tier decks and then a quarter of the metagame is made up by rogues. And I don't think that's something that you find as often in other formats. Yeah, I highly doubt that, actually. Yeah, I uh, I mean, I, I will, you know, fess up that I don't follow, like, Standard very closely. And I, I know Modern is a little bit more prone because it's still kind of a newer format to, to have rogues show up. But when, when I look at these numbers and actually... Uh, one of my upcoming articles would be kind of a, a catch-all statistics kind of thing, looking at what we've seen. And what I found is that we're averaging, you know, in a, a two-week period, um, about 15 to 25 rogue decks. And this isn't like repeats. That's not to say, you know, maybe four elf versions. No, this is 15 to 25 different rogues. Different deck types are showing up every, you know, two weeks when I do these articles. And, you know, to me, that's pretty fantastic. And it's not even, you know, sure, there are some times where it's just a one of, but these are deck lists where you will see maybe five people ending up in the money and winning prizes with some great rogue strategy. And, you know, it's, it's really great. You know, I, I think that these days in the, the last two months, um, it's, it's kind of slowed down a little bit. Uh, despite the fact that we've had a huge increase in the number of players who are actually playing in Pomper events because of, you know, of course, the new season. And um, anyways, they're all coming out, but they're playing a lot of the more popular decks. So it's it's really decreased a bit. But we've had a total of, you know, in, in all the time I've been doing this, and I've almost been tracking the meta for about a year now, and I keep a list of all of the rogues and stuff that we've seen. We've seen a total of 50 different rogue or homebrew decks showing up. And that's including what I classified and talked about earlier as Junk Post, which breaks down into another, God, I don't even know, six or seven deck lists. So, you know, it's it's really great to me that you can see all of these different rogues that show up on a regular basis. There's such a variety, and they clearly come in cycles. If you look at the popularity of things, um, you know, we usually have our top three as Storm in some variant. Delver Blue and Is It Post. And those are consistently the top three most played decks in daily events. Now, when you look at those, we had a, a series of weeks where Stompy, which I consider personally to be the number one aggro deck in the format, had slowly worked its way up and managed like a number two showing. All of a sudden, 
the rogue started popping up. That's probably around the time where teachings was back in August starting to creep up as well, because it's, it's like the cycle you consider aggro and control being these like balancing points as aggro starts to creep up. People go, okay, well, a lot of people are running aggro, so I'm going to run control to counter that. And, you know, that's kind of the appeal of rogues in general is that you can counter that. So it really goes back and forth. So all of a sudden, when Stompy was number two, you had an increase in things like teachings and you had an increase in like mono black control, which is maybe borderline rogue. But, you know, it's it's really great that we have such an open environment that's really rogue friendly and that there's such a, a great balancing point between those those different levels of control and aggro and combo even. Cool. So, um, do you have any other just general rogue related things that you wanted to bring up? No, I think, uh, I think that's pretty well covered it. Great. So I would like to wrap up this episode just by giving a few of my final thoughts on going rogue in Popper. And I just want to remind people that if you do tend, if you do decide to take on a rogue strategy, make sure that you're still incorporating all of the fundamental skills that are required for playing this game. So if you're going to, you know, build your own deck, make try and learn some basic deck building principles that will help you make an optimal version of that deck and just consider the pros and cons of going rogue because there are a few I think and not necessarily weaknesses, but there are a few cons to going rogue. Similarly uh, to the the pros, where not a lot of people are going to have much information on your rogue deck, you also are going to have a limited amount of information because you can't really reach out and find more resources online. There's not going to be a lot of stuff written about this particular deck you're playing. There's not going to be a ton of data, though there might be a little bit. So it's going to be a little harder for you to gauge the the matchups it has, the effectiveness that it does have in the metagame. You're going to have to put in a lot of legwork on your own and do quite a bit of testing if you really want to be knowledgeable about that rogue strategy. And I think the other thing is that sometimes the established decks are established for a reason that they they play cards with a uh, high power level so just try to keep that in mind and don't shy away from some of these really powerful cards just because they are popular see if you can incorporate some of these top tier principles or strategies or synergies into your own decks rather than just being completely adverse to them uh, but like we said there are, there are a lot of pros to going rogue you kind of go under the radar your deck is going to be harder to deal with, to to uh, mentally predict or play against or anticipate. And you're going to be able to open your mind strategically and be able to kind of look at more possibilities than I think other players will. And that's going to help you just be more well-rounded in general. So that's pretty much all I have to say as far as summarizing Rogue and Popper. Do you want to just have any uh, final thoughts on the topic? No, I couldn't agree with you more, man. Knowledge is power, you know, whether it's playing the deck or reading articles that people write. Um, anything you can can learn will give you an advantage, whether you're playing a, an established deck or a rogue deck. Great. So just as a conclusion, let's go ahead and go into shout outs and talk about how people can contact us. And I'll just go ahead and give these shout outs real quick. Definitely a shout out to Justin for coming on and, and giving some great information today. And a shout-out to Gabo, also a co-founder of this podcast. Shout-out to all the listeners. I hope you guys are having a great New Year so far. If you want to contact the show, 
You can email us at popperscage at gmail.com. You can also check out the corresponding blog, which is popperscage.blogspot.ca. If you want to check out some of my content, you can go to youtube.com slash dimecollectorsc. I have post uh, videos up on there. You can also follow me on Twitter at dimecollectorsc. Finally, I write articles for MTGO Academy. The article series is called Dime a Dozen. And I also write articles for blackborder.com, and that article series is called Common Ground. So please you know, contact me. Let me know what you think of my content, what you want to see in the future. I'm also on MTGO. My ID is Bamboo Rush. So I'm going to turn it over to Justin for your shout-outs and how people can get a hold of you. All right. Well, uh, definitely thank you for having me. I mean, this, is, this has been great. If you want to find me, it's pretty much MTGO Justin everywhere. So youtube.com um, slash MTGO Justin. Channel's a little quiet these days, but uh, there will be, like I said, I, I have that um, whole series of uh, eight post videos that are on there. Um, hopefully I can get some more content up there. Been a little bit busy, but uh, you can definitely check out some of the back work that I have there. And Twitter, it is at MTGO Justin. And uh, you can email me at mtgojustsin at yahoo.com. I had a series I was working on for my YouTube channel uh, that I called Fan Fixes. And it's not kind of a, a proven deck doctor thing, but I've had um, you know people send me emails and stuff and requests in-game. You know, hey, do you want to take a look at this deck and, and maybe give me input? So you can feel free to email me there. Um, and, you know, I'm busy, so I will get to it, I promise you, but it may take me a little while. You can also, like I said, uh, find me MTGO Academy. My series there is anything but. And um, it's every other Thursday. This Thursday actually is going to be my next one, and I'm covering Hexproof. And that's going to be really cool. Uh, if I can plug that article here for a second, it's going to be uh, talking about the Hexproof deck maybe a little bit why it's not as popular as some people think it should be. You know, you look at Hexproof and it's kind of a, a strong mechanic, so why is it not so popular? Uh, so it'll be looking at some of the flaws. I've got videos showing kind of um, the favorable, unfavorable, and mirror matches for it. Um, there's also a short interview with uh, Deluxikov, who, you know, I guess props to him, um, sat down and talked to me a bit about the deck. And he's a player who's running it on a constant basis in daily events. So he is definitely um, someone who's very, very familiar with it. So definitely uh, check that out when it comes out this Thursday. Yeah, looking forward to that for sure. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for listening. This has been episode 19. We are turning 20 for our next episode. So we'll be sure to cook up something very special for that. But until then, we'll talk to you guys later. And thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.